0: Good morning. The scripture is in Acts five twelve to 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought them sick brought the sick into the streets, and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, "'Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing.' They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. You can take it. On. Well, good morning. 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 Um, every now and then when you um, start to prepare for preaching, sometimes it seems as though the sermon is actually written for me. Uh, and so today I feel uh, a bit of heaviness as, I, as I'm up here. Uh, if you would pray with me. Most high God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus lived, that he served, that he loved. We thank you that he suffered and died on a cross for us. We thank you that he rose again. May you speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1993, a movie, a classic movie came out. It's called Rudy. And in this movie, there's a young man who had always wanted to play football for Notre Dame. Now, he wasn't the greatest in school, and he uh, was small, and so he struggled at achieving his goal. He worked really, really hard. He managed to get into Notre Dame. And then, of course, because he was small, the coach had no interest in having him join the team. But he goes out, and he agrees to just practice with the team, which basically meant he was just simply a punching bag. His big guys were beating him up, he was getting bruised and battered, and he just kept at it. In the last few minutes of the film, Rudy is finally put into a game, and he is able to realize the results, the purpose, realized what he had been focused on and, and lived and worked so hard to achieve the goal of playing football for Notre Dame. This is a classic American story where you work hard have a purpose, fulfill your goals and dreams, life is good. A few years ago, during a long commute, I listened to a book on Audible entitled The Power of Meaning by Emily S. Fahani Smith. Smith studied psychology, and in her book, she describes how we are a culture obsessed with happiness. Pursuing the best job, finding the perfect spouse, the most spectacular Instagrammable vacation spot, many of us hold off committing to Saturday night plans, unwilling to settle for an okay option, hoping and waiting for a better alternative to come along. Smith argues that seeking meaning and purpose is more important and different from happiness. Her argument in some ways is nothing new. Nonetheless, she argues that religion used to provide us with meaning, but as Western societies have become more secular, We have lost meaning and purpose. We have diverted our pursuits towards happiness, which tends to be ever-elusive. According to Smith, this pursuit has actually led us down a path towards decreasing returns of happiness. Without finding something purposeful to do, people flounder, she says. An example she provides was describing how a person taking care of a dying loved one typically has an enormous amount of purpose and meaning, even if the reality of their circumstance doesn't really leave them happy. In the midst of their anguish and suffering, providing care and support drives them forward and motivates them. Interestingly, Smith goes on to describe all the various ways that we can find purpose and meaning on our own, in light of our own individuality. In other words, we can find purpose, meaning and belonging, according to Smith, through events and interests, things that interest us. Our life is as meaningful, as full and wonderful as we choose to make it. There is something liberating in these ideas and thoughts. Indeed, we are a culture drawn to choice, individual choice, to the idea that I can create and make my own destiny. Tim Keller describes this secular line of thinking in this way. You decide the kind of life that you find most valuable and worth living, and then you must seek to create that kind of life. The trouble is that most of the purposes and meanings that people in our society often choose to create have a shelf life, I fear it is only an illusion that we are able to create our own meaning and purpose. Graduating from college, for example, is a great goal. Having worked with college students for years, I have watched as students are motivated and driven towards graduation. And I have also watched as the majority of those same students have entered what I call the post-college depression when they wake up a few months into their new jobs and they realize they have over 40 years of working, years of student loan repayments, and no spring break or summer vacation to look forward to. If the goal is realized or achieved, then what's next? This affirms what Smith says, that with a purpose, people are motivated and driven and then the depression hits when, they per- when the purposelessness of reality, post-success, arrives. And friends, this is what we experience when we meet our goals. <laughs> what happens when we don't? Imagine if, at the end of the Rudy film, he doesn't get on the field to play for his 30 seconds of glory. The movie just ends with Rudy having endured all the bruises, all the pain, and then at the end of the game, he's just sitting on the bench, credit scrolling. (laughs) Would have made for a good blockbuster hit, huh? Or what happens when suffering intrudes and interrupts our plans? Today, we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Acts. Let me remind us that the book of Acts is the continuation of God's story, the second volume in a work by the gospel writer Luke, where the story continues with the same themes and the central message of Jesus from the Gospel account. In the book of Luke, we see the powerful ministry of Jesus. He heals the sick, feeds the poor, preaches and teaches good news, lives out God's love. He endures torturous sufferings on the cross, and he was gloriously raised from the dead. In a cohesive and unified way, Acts continues the themes and story from the Gospel of Luke. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, because he is alive, Jesus sends out his disciples and his church to continue his work and ministry, to go about healing the sick, feeding the poor, preaching good news, living out God's love, and to walk with Jesus in his suffering. In some ways, nothing is new, Acts is simply a continuation of God's story, of his work in, through, and among his people. And yet, in so many ways, because of Jesus, everything is new. The book of Acts tells us about a story of a group of disciples that have clarity and drive in fulfilling the purpose and mission that Jesus has given them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, specifically, in Acts chapter 5, Luke, the author, presents clear parallels with Acts chapter 4, which was preached here at Journey in December. Here, we find the disciples are again preaching and healing people. They are again called to testify before the religious leaders. They again respond by saying, we have to obey God. And again the religious leaders make threats to the disciples telling them to stop preaching in Jesus name quit healing people. In Luke 5:12 through 16 in short it's where the disciples are faithfully going about the work and ministry of Jesus continuing to preach about him continuing to heal their numbers are increasing and their reputation is growing. The story of Jesus, the work, ministry, and teachings of the disciples in Jesus' name was spreading like a viral video. They were not flying under, this, under the radar, and by verse 17, they have drawn the attention of the religious leaders yet again. So in Acts 5, 17 through 20, it says... Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. This marks a difference in the story when compared with Acts chapter 4. Here, the disciples are thrown in prison. An angel of the Lord comes, releases them, and tells them to keep preaching. This passage foreshadows similar prison break experiences found in Acts 12 and Acts 16. Verse 21 tells us that the disciples went back out and preached. They did what the angel of the Lord told them to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had just been thrown in jail and was released, I'm not sure this would have been my immediate response. My instinct tells me that I would be trying to find a way to get to Mexico. Isn't it better to escape? Even if I was going to stick around, I probably would have laid low for a while, hoping that the pending storm would blow over. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, describes how many in our contemporary Western culture view God and suffering. In this book, he describes how most contemporary Americans either want to fix suffering or when that proves too difficult or beyond our control, we simply want to escape it. He argues that most of us believe that suffering is simply a chaotic interruption to our lives, and as a result, the only real path is to get rid of it, escape it. Now, Church I fear that our secular world has crept in far more deeply and insidiously than we tend to think. I am generally always shocked when suffering occurs. It is clearly an interruption to my plans and generally fosters feelings of chaos and being out of control. My default is always, always, always to fix it, to try to understand it, and to find a cause. Let's call it continuous improvement. Let's just skip the trusting God part and move on to the five-year strategic plan. If I can't figure out a way to control it, what's causing my pain, then I simply go to the next option, to escape to the mountains or to the beach or to any place that will find temporary relief. Day to day, I can binge watch a few shows on Netflix until it's time to pass out and go to bed. I can eat a slice of cake, or better yet, the entire cake, (laughs) anything that will be a temporary coping device. Our society is filled with people just trying to escape, scroll their way to oblivion, eat or drink their way to a temporary solace, or run away. I fear my life more often reflects the hopeless, despairing world around me than it does the life of purpose and ministry of the disciples here in Acts chapter 5. Notice that the disciples didn't run. They didn't escape. The angel of the Lord told them to continue on with the work of the kingdom, and that's what they did. They were supposed to keep doing what had gotten them in trouble in the first place, and they did so because they had a mission and a purpose. They went right back and kept preaching. In verse 21, the religious leaders finally came to get the disciples and bring, try to bring them to trial. But almost comically, they couldn't find them in jail. It seems like they looked everywhere for them, but they were right where they were when they were arrested in the first place, back at the temple preaching. Clearly, the disciples weren't hiding. In fact, they had returned to the scene of the crime. Yet in contrast, notice that the religious leaders were having to tread lightly. The PR firm that was representing the Sanhedrin was concerned about these events that were unfolding. They were getting out of hand. Verse 26 says that the arrest had to be done quietly so that people wouldn't stone them. The religious leaders were concerned about what to do. They worried that if they cracked down too hard, then the movement might grow. So in the end, they decided to give them a good old beating, tell them to stop preaching, and go on their way the response of the disciples is powerful. They defiantly say, we have to obey God. And after their beating and release, verse 41 and two says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering for his name? What? Who among us views suffering as something that counts us as worthy? You see, the phrase that Luke provides, worthy of suffering, is an oxymoron. It does not make sense. Most of us, even Christians, have generally accepted ideas from our culture that that are radically different from the way of the cross, radically different compared to the purpose lived out by the disciples in Acts Acts 5. I tend to believe that if I work hard and smart, it should lead to rewards, outcomes. Isn't that the way of the world? We tend to believe that following Jesus makes our lives better, more blessed, which is never fully defined, but I think for most of us usually means healthy, comfortable, happy. While in some ways Jesus certainly does make our lives better, and he does help us get through the day, I fear I generally view suffering as a horrible, unfair disruption to my happy, healthy, quiet, suburban life. It somehow feels like a violation of the agreement I made with God, at least subconsciously you know the one I follow you Jesus you give me the good life you see I know that these lies have crept into my life because these feelings emerge every time suffering shows up suffering is not something to rejoice suffering is not something to be counted worthy of even those of us who intellectually reject a health and wealth gospel on some level the karmic notion that if I do what is right I will get it all emerges The trouble is that as we age and life doesn't go as planned, our sufferings can leave us disillusioned and angry at God. But Jesus never promised us the American dream. He offers us so much more. Jesus has given us a purpose, and he is with us in his mission. He has given us a purpose of faithfully loving our neighbors, of devotedly healing. He offers us a purpose of feeding the poor, a call to foster belonging for those who are often left out. He gives us the task of faithfully presenting, revealing, and living out renewal, restoration, and redemption to a world that is simply trying to get away from it all. I fear that we, the church, have rejected the sufferings of the cross because they are indeed costly. But it has left us no different than those around us trying to escape to get away. If we are going to follow Jesus, if we are going to participate in the hope that he provides, then we have to be willing to follow him into and through his sufferings. Karen Kilby words it well. In any Christian vision of things, the relationship between love and suffering will be significant. One cannot operate within a tradition which has the cross as its central symbol without, it would seem, somehow thinking about suffering and love in close proximity. Isn't it in suffering that we really know what we love? I think of my dad, who has now lovingly and devotedly cared for and served two different wives as they suffered and ultimately died from cancer. You see, if we aren't willing to suffer for it, do we really even love it? As I had been preparing for this sermon, uh, I couldn't help but get emotional thinking about a few people and experiences from my time abroad. I've hesitated to know how much to share here. I was in my 20s when I lived in Asia, and there was an older local Christian man who mentored and encouraged me. He was a super likable guy, and he was exceptionally wise. Being a Christian for locals was hard. He had been beaten up and threatened. I remember his coming over to my apartment and hearing about his dreams and hopes for his life, his kids, and his community. One day, shortly before returning to the US, I went for a walk with him across a beautiful old bridge in the city I lived in, and he told me about the increasing volumes of threats made against him. My takeaway from that conversation, what I remember clearly was him saying several times throughout the talk, what can they do to me? What can they do to me? Shortly after returning to the States, I got word that my friend had been shot and killed for his faith. A few years after returning to the US, I went back to Asia with a group of college students. We spent several months hiking the hills, eating the most spectacular delicious juice mangoes and working with local believers. A year or so later, all of the churches and the homes of many of the believers in the area were ransacked, pillaged, and burned down. Another local Christian man was a man who was highly energetic, confident, and bold. I remember driving around with him on my motorcycle to visit with people, to share with them. One time, he convinced me to drive him up on my motorcycle on the icy roads in the mountains because he had work to do and the ice wasn't going to stop him. Outside of God's grace, with all the slipping and sliding, I'm not sure how he survived the day. After a major earthquake in the area, he was like the Energizer Bunny, going out and about, trying to do all he could to help his people. A few years ago, I got word, again, that some men had come, dragged him out of his home, and shot him seven times because of Jesus. In so many ways, these stories are not about me. Please, please, please do not walk away from hearing these stories saying, I'm thankful we don't live there, or praise God we have freedom of religion. If we do, I fear we are missing the point. You see, the sufferings of Jesus and Acts 5 tells me that my friends have been counted worthy. I fear it is we who have lost our way, not because we should run out and seek or look for suffering but I do fear that we have lost our sense of purpose. I fear that we have fallen prey to the notion that following Jesus is somehow about us and what he can do for me, which in some ways mimics what Emily S. Fahani Smith describes as pursuit of happiness. I'm convinced this is why we are so often disillusioned or frustrated with God. We have bought the idea that we can choose or create our own purpose, bowing to our culture's idols of self-realization and self-fulfillment. But ugh, isn't that exhausting? Charles Swindle words it this way. Jesus didn't fit the theological mold of the Messiah in first century Israel. The ancient experts in Old Testament prophecy expected a larger than life political mogul a muscular military commander, economic guru, prophetic sage, and moral champion all rolled into one magnificent package. They expected this man to make life good again, to restore Israel's military power, economic prosperity and religious order. So when a peaceful carpenter from the boonies of Galilee presented himself as the long-awaited king announcing a very different kind of agenda the religious leaders of Israel frowned, jeered, and rejected him. Even those who accepted him as the Messiah didn't understand his mission, regardless of how many times Jesus promised the exact opposite of health and wealth, comfort and ease. Even after his resurrection, they had wondered, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Here in Acts 5, however, they are counted worthy of suffering for Jesus' name because they finally see Jesus. They finally understand the purpose and mission that Jesus gave his followers. They have become determined and focused in their love of Jesus, in their pursuit of his mission. They're willing to suffer. They're willing to bear his cross. I fear I often fail to live out my God-given purpose. Sometimes it just seems easier if I had Jesus without the inconvenience of the cross, without that suffering bit. I'd rather it was convenient, easy, and comfortable. Let me show up, sit in the back, go home. I think there is something to the ideas that Emily Estahani Smith says about purpose. Indeed, I think our culture is missing purpose and meaning, We don't have to look far to find that we are floundering and purposeless. What seems problematic to me is her idea about my ability to create a purpose or mission that will ultimately lead to my fulfillment. It just seems too shallow. It feels overwhelming to me, and I think it denies the realities of my frailty, my weakness, my shortcomings. Praise be to God, I don't have to create a purpose. God has called me, God has called us by name. He has given us a purpose. Our salvation isn't just about us. Rather, in seeing and experiencing Jesus, in following him, we are called to be about his mission, his ministry, his purpose, just as the disciples here in Acts 5 were. We have been called to follow him, to heal, to feed, to welcome the stranger, We've been given the purpose of speaking of good news, of living as a people of hope, knowing that the sufferings we may experience are known by a God who suffers, by a God who has a plan, a plan that we may not fully know or understand, but a plan that is held by the hands of a faithful, loving, and with us God. It is my prayer that we, the church, would rediscover our God-given purpose and mission, that we would be willing to follow him into his work and purpose. And when we encounter suffering, or when the outcomes we hope for aren't immediately realized, may we truly follow Jesus who has suffered and died for us. I'd like for us to close today with a prayer, and this is a, a liturgy, it's a congregational involvement. It's going to be on the screen, if you would stand with me. This is from a liturgy of praise to Christ who labors through his people. If you would read the lines following the phrase church. Let us in your love and in response to your love now lovingly undertake all labors to which you have called us, whether those labors in themselves are small or grand visible or hidden, lauded or overlooked, rewarding or costly, a seeming drudgery or a perpetual delight. Be always at work in us, among us, and through us, O Christ. Let us give ourselves to all such labors, knowing that through them it is you we serve. For you receive every work offered unto you, let us give ourselves to all such labors, knowing that we do not labor alone, for it is you who labors through us. Love through us, O Lord. Labor through us, O God. Move through us, O Spirit. We are your people. Now, as we walk this pilgrim road together, Jesus, drawing ever nearer to your coming kingdom, May your light shine ever more brilliantly from our lives, and your pure love be made ever more visible in our actions, even as you labor in us, among us, and through us, unto your eternal ends,
0: O Christ. We give you praise. Amen.